Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to day two of housing hurdles in LA County. Again, my name is Larry Fernandez, um, part of the PMHP implementation team, and um, um, I will be again doing day two along with my colleague Chelsea, who will jump in at the tail end of day two. And of course, we have Danielle here, who who did the uh, our wonderful day one along with a small part for me. So, welcome everyone. And so just to give a couple of uh, quick reference to uh, yesterday's ending part of day, day one, I, I kind of zoomed through a couple of different things uh, quickly, but I do want to just um, start us off with the uh, with the statistics that that I left off with yesterday and 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 one of those is as we keep in mind the population we're working with in LA County by way of those folks that are currently unhoused or homeless. That of the population that we have in LA County. Uh, 50, uh, excuse me, 45% of those folks also have been identified to have a physical health or a medical condition. And in addition to that, of, the, of that group of, of unhoused or homeless individuals, 50% uh, of those folks also suffer from a mental illness. And 50, uh, 55, between 53 and 55% of those folks also have challenges with substance abuse uh, current substance abuse problems or past substance abuse problems. And I say that as a reference point, just so that we have um, um, a, a mindset that um, housing or identifying housing for folks as such is never going to be black and white because everyone has such a different need and therefore um, all types of housing options are needed when trying to find housing for someone. So today as um, I'm, um, you know, starting off in my part, just keeping in mind that I'm really working on on presenting what's what's more based off the informal housing strategies, right? The plan Bs, the what happens on a Friday night when it's almost five o'clock and a client comes into your agency and is like, I need somewhere to go. And so that's really the approach that I come from in terms of my world as a director in FSP and really trying to do some more urgent emergency-based stuff. Um, but again, not taking away from the informal, excuse me, from the formal, just complementing it in that way. So here's some strategies and tips that may be helpful. Some of the things, uh, you, uh, some of these may sound very familiar. You may be doing these. Uh, many of these come really by way of my own personal experience um, um, and having been a part of an FSP team and a director of an FSP uh, team for different agencies over the, over the course of uh, the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. So the first thing that comes to mind here when we, we look at housing needs is knowing your neighbors, right? Oftentimes what we do is we try to centralize services um, for clients where they are oftentimes most comfortable. And that makes sense, right? Because people want to stay in a space that they're comfort, uh, comfortable geographically. But sometimes it's about also knowing who are our partnering neighbors, right? So like in this instance, if I'm in service area, Three, which is here in like that violet purple color, who are our partnering neighbors in let's say service area four or seven? And is it possible that I maybe extend my reach of service possibilities for placement of housing in those service areas in which the client may also be able to comfortably go into and navigate into a different spot area? So that is very uh, vital when you're extending your, your reach of, of, of housing support. And again, as we know, sometimes certain, uh, certain spas are just very limited with service um, um, housing needs, um, housing options, I should say. So extending your, your options like, like as such is very important. And the other thing 
is speaking to a client to find out, are they familiar with any other geographical areas where they might be interested in actually being comfortable, comfortably placed? Um, again, keeping in mind that important considerations when accessing housing outside of your service designated spa is, is the client willing to go outside the service area, right? So don't make that leap without the client being invested, interested, and you all planning with the client. Uh, the next thing is, does the client have transportation um, support, whether that's through your agency, uh, public transportation, or some other form of, of access to public transportation, and uh, excuse me, transportation in general. And I say that because sometimes the client may need to go and to and from very important appointments, whether that be a legal appointment, mental health appointment, medication appointment, whatever the case may be, we want to make sure that we're setting the client up to succeed and not fail by putting them in a geographical area that's way too out of their area. Um, the next thing there is where the client needs support to learn about the new housing community, right? Again, is the client going to be placed in a housing experience that they're not comfortable with or knowledgeable of? And how does that work with them in terms of by way of their physical need, their, their mental health needs, and just even cultural needs, right? Or, or what are the things that complement them and, um, and make it difficult for them? Right. One thing that comes to mind for me there is uh, housing options that, that do not accept um, um, pets where you have some folks that are really connected to their pets and, and they will not budge unless their pet is with them. Um, next bullet point there is if the client is on, on probation with the, um, with the, with the location, uh, uh, will the location be in violation of the probation? And so that's something unique and, and specific to keep in mind is, is there geographical constraints when placing somebody in housing? Also something to keep in mind there is also someone who is in the category of a, sex, uh, a sexual offender because there is parameters by which where you can, can and cannot place someone by way of housing. Um, and lastly, as a bullet point here, can the client live in near locations like uh, due to uh, restraining orders, sexual offense, and criminal uh, violations, right? Again, keeping in mind that somebody may or may not have a, 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 a restraining order or some limitation of such. Um, the next thing is really keeping in mind uh, sober living house houses as an option. Again, for some folks, this is completely out of, of the question, out of the possibility, um, you know, but, but for many it is. And so again, just reading off here, sober living houses are facility, uh, facilities that provide safe housing for participants that are in different stages of their treatment recovery. Um, since there's a range of types and formats, <clears throat> excuse me, of um, sober living within LA County, it's important to become familiar with each location, requirement, guidelines, expectations, and ability to support your client. So don't just um, 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 accept the fact that, oh, it's a sober living experience, for a client, um, I would also, um, as I always would train my staff, is to go out to the site, visit it. Um, you yourself as a team determine the grade that you would give this sober living space, right? Do they have um, internal groups? Is it regimented? Do they have testing sites? You know, um, testing meaning like UA testing. And uh, are there other categories that are important to your client? Like what is the fee? Is there a, uh, a time in and out requirement? Can someone work um, late hours and still live at the sober living home? And so that is very important to keep in mind. I did a snapshot of um, sober livings that are in LA. That is nowhere near um, um, the amount. It's just representative of some. 
Now, if you look at this slide towards the bottom, there's a link there that's for the soberhousing.net. If you go onto that link directly, it takes you to a database in which you can, um, um, you can uh, prompt what city or what zip code you're looking for and um, gender um, specific needs that you have for the client. And um, a lot of information will come up on this database. For instance, rent cost, um, unique, uh, uh, unique uh, offerings that the, the the home might do. So again, again, it's a good starting point. And again, as a plan B for some, this might be a vital and very possible um, housing option. So again, sober living, uh, again, not for everyone, but definitely for many. And so something to keep in mind as a housing option. Um, important notes to keep in mind and when considering sober living, what is the monthly cost? Uh, a uh, range, uh, range of sober living types. Is there, again, UA testing requirements? Will the space be shared or is it an individual space? Is there a curfew time? Are there shared responsibilities such as cooking and cleaning and other um, activities of, of daily living that your client may or may not be able to accomplish and, 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 and participate in? Um, are there visitors allowed? Is medication self-managed or by uh, or is a sober living staff uh, member assisting in that? And then uh, and lastly here is, is a sober living um, um, home have a crisis plan? For instance, do they call the police first? Do they notify their uh, their treatment team or FSP team? Or they do, do they discharge without notice? I place these, in, uh, these examples down because I've been through all of them. Um, I've had, I've worked with sober living um, locations that uh, the moment there's any small crisis, they call the police. Others will notify the team first, and we will be the ones to assist in problem solving. And then I've had others that have just discharged our clients, and our clients will call us at two in the morning and have nowhere to go. And so it's important that you take those extra steps um, to um, support your team and, and get that information prior instead of uh, as I did um, on the fly and learn as you go. And motel partnerships is a, uh, a, bigger, uh, is a bigger option now more than ever. Um, again, in my years of FSP, when I started to do motel partnerships, it was not a very big partner um, partnering experience and it was actually not the most pleasant experience. I, I recall actually walking in many of the geographical areas that I was at and, and really meeting motel owners and asking if they could uh, partner with us um, by way of flex funds to support our clients. So as I noted here, identifying a motel within a service area and close to your office location that is willing to establish an informal partnership can be extremely helpful when needing to place a client within a short notice of time. For instance, when they're discharged from a hospital um, either abruptly or without notice, um, the release from jail um, at a moment's notice, or kicked out from a current housing um, situation that was already set in play, whether that be with family or non-family. Um, um, the last service area I worked in was service area seven. I had a partnership with two different motels in which we, were, we had the luxury of having a credit card on file with the particular um, um, motel. And when there was an urgent need, um, we would email the motel owner and they would give us a space overnight and our team would be there the next morning at 8 a.m to really get the ball rolling for more of a uh, a formal housing option but again this was a saving grace in many moments and um, I, I encourage those highly when you have the ability to do that in your within your team 
So important um, a motel partnership placement considerations. Is the client currently stable enough to live independently and self-monitored? Um, oftentimes, I've seen clients be placed in motel situations and motel type um, living, and they are not able to, um, to function independently. And therefore, it becomes a hindrance to the client, and client may leave with, um, without notifying their team, or secondly, may cause an experience in which we've um, incurred um, expenses that were not planned for because the client destroyed something in the room because they were actively psychotic or going through some really uh, challenging experiences through the, their own um, mental health needs. And they, were, they shouldn't have been placed there um, um, and they should have been screened out better. Uh, the next thing here is, can the client afford the weekly, daily, or monthly cost at a hotel? Yes, some of you may have flex funds and may have options to pay some of that, but is if the client is paying a residual part of it or a portion of it, will that be um, enough? And does the client have enough funds for that? If utilizing flex funds, has there, has, it been, has there been a clear plan for days of stay? For instance, have you identified with your team and with whoever does um, flex fund support the amount of days that you all can pay for having a client there? And if you have identified that amount of days, make sure that it's clearly identified to the client. And what is your plan C at this point, as this is your plan B, right? Um, next is, does client, um, does client have a way to communicate with staff? For instance, do they have a, a, a functioning phone? Are they able to text and things of that nature? Is there a, vis a visitor policy? Oftentimes, motels, when you partner with them, there is an absolute no visitor policy plan there. Um, Next is does a client does a client um, uh, does a does a motel provide refrigerator or microwave? Again, not a big deal for some of us. We may not think of this as an important um, point, but having a refrigerator and microwave makes a big difference to someone who may need to wake up in the morning and have something to eat because of a physical problem, um, a or or any other sort of challenge that they may have. And so partnering in in that and finding that out beforehand can be very big. Um, and then, um, again, as I mentioned, our leadership um, was able to work with us on putting um, a credit card on file. And the last thing here is just points of caution. Um, think about um, motels and consideration where they're at geographically and what is surrounding um, and the environment like there. Is there drug sales on the premises, sex, work, gang activity, et cetera? Will this re-trigger a client or trigger a client of yours to um, maybe relapse or go on the opposite spectrum of their recovery. So it's very important to keep in mind um, that. And we also had, um, I had an experience in which we placed a family. It was two young um, children, one, uh, one, the male was eight, the female was 14 and a mother in a, in a motel. And um, we had to remove them the very next day as um, there was um, folks trying to approach the, um, the minor female um, and engage them in sex trafficking. So again, something to keep in mind. Um, housing placements with family and collateral systems. Again, uh, we might think that this is, you know, something that should be happening organically, but sometimes it's not. Folks, Keep in mind that, um, you know, it is not uncommon for many of our clients to have either um, lack of support through family members or having, unfortunately, maybe burn bridges with families and connections, and therefore their collateral systems are very brief uh, or very limited, I should say. So at, at, at times, 
um, they may have access to a permanent living environment by way of family or identified collateral source. This may be a rented space, for instance, a bedroom, an apartment, or a portion of a living space. It's important for the team to explore what type of options the family is willing to, to um, accept or extend, if you will, and will the family be providing some level of rules, requirements, and expectations prior to the client agreeing to move in. Um, again, whether it's, a, um, a, it's an extended um, room of the home or not, probably good for there to be a set of rules that um, two, um, both parties are in agreement with. Why I say that is this, we've had, um, we've had, I've worked with families that have said, you know what, I'm gonna let my son come back and live here. Um, um, we supported the son moving back in. We, played, uh, we paid for a month's stay within a family home. And um, about a week later, they kicked them out and um, we had to find another motel space. So again, um, what happened here is we didn't have clear requirements or responsibilities of what the family um, was expecting and not expecting from this individual. But again, housing, um, housing someone within a family or a collateral system is, is definitely an option. In an, and again, in a plan B method as we wait for more formal options. Important considerations for living with family. Will there be a rental agreement established with set rules? Um, can or will the family collateral be involved in the treatment process? Will, there, will they be transporting um, to and from a treatment um, appointment or will they be readily available to participate in, let's say, family therapy, things of that nature? Um, is there, uh, will they create a crisis plan in the event a crisis emergency occurs for the client? Um, if using flex funds, will the, will the check be made out to the landlord or will it be identified um, um, uh, a, a check identified directly to a family member and then prepare for a plan C in the event a challenge occurs within that living arrangement. So tips to consider um, for your team to be a bit more successful. All team members should be fully aware of what resources are most accessible within a service area. So again, whether you have someone who just onboarded to your team, has been working with your team regularly, or has a lot of experience um, in that geographical area, uh, making sure that all team members are aware of all the resources can be most beneficial to your team as um, you know, everyone then creates their own uh, um, ability uh, or network resource um, pool, if you will. Secondly, having knowledge, secondly, having, um, having knowledge of the resource location is only a starting point. Team members should be visiting the locations to assure they're um, a good fit for the client. So again, just because um, someone says, oh, here's a new apartment complex that has, has um, openings for housing, that is just the starting point. That's step one. It's our responsibility as treatment team members to make sure that um, what kind of needs are there and do they fit the requirements of our client. Um, thirdly, supervisors and managers should also seek to establish regular communication with resource partners. When possible, establish monthly meetings. Um, I worked closely with a sober living home in which I placed about five or six of my FSP clients. And so what did that do for me organically? Um, it allowed for me to create a monthly meeting for us to sit down with the folks on both sides and in a collaborative manner, have a monthly check-in about these six um, or five or six clients so that we can both be on the same page and really work most effectively. And that really was by way of the management staff. So something to consider. And then just by way of leadership, 
um, leadership should consider a training on the introduction to local resources for all new staff when onboarding. So it should be an onboarding, uh, an onboarding um, kind of, uh, um, you know, given, if you will. Okay, and then here I leave you with some supportive links. Definitely not an exhaustive list, just a couple things for you to kind of reference. The Family Solutions um, um, countywide, also um, um, some interim housing uh, link, uh, parole housing link, and LA County resource for housing. You also have built into one of the links prior. You have a link for the sober um, soberhousing.net that you can access. So with that, I um, I pass it over to my colleague, and um, I will ask though prior to that if you have any questions that I can answer. Right, and and you bring up an excellent point. Um, again, I many times um, had overextended the amount of um, what we would consider indigent clients in our FSP team, right? And therefore, we were exhausting a lot of an FSP flex funds. So these these ideas that I just mentioned, or these Plan Bs, came really by way of that. It's like how do we spend the least amount possible to really be as supportive as possible to our clients. And in this case, for instance, does that person, does that client, despite being indigent, do they have a, an available resource family member that is willing to give them a space that's rented that would really allow for them to have a social support? And also at the same time, we can utilize flex on support. I, I say that not to take away from your response, because I do know that oftentimes um, the the the, um, the 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 access to um, undocumented um, like per se housing is very difficult to navigate, and so these are really just strategies so that we can continue to work effectively with our clients that may not ever have a formal access to a housing plan in many respects. Um, yeah. So there's a couple. Um, 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 housing, uh, excuse me, some, some, uh, some messages here in the chat. Um, I will start with, um, um, we mentioned Brilliant Corners is a good resource for individuals without documentation. Very good. There's one resource. How, um, house and clients through um, there who um, was, uh, house the client there who was undocumented with no income. Perfect. That's a good resource then. Uh, the question is, do you have a se a, um, homeless sexual offender resources? And um, at here in this training, I didn't add any um, resources, but what, what I say oftentimes, if a person is a registered sex offender and is on probation or parole, um, one of the best methods for housing is to go directly to the housing um, um, pools of probation officers and parole agents as um, they understand the requirements and the logistics of where you can and cannot place someone and they're not in violation of any sort. And uh, again, used boarding cares for single males with criminal history, but no sexual criminal. Absolutely, Berlin Corners. Um, and, and then would help all my family, uh, children born in the US. Thank you. Very good. So cool, very good chat um, uh, in terms of um, information. Those are all really good points. Spa six is a great uh, is a great resource for families, but have to go in person. Not sure about documentation. Have to go with persons and early in the morning. Absolutely, um, know that the trek for um, locating housing is a endless one when it comes to planning. Sometimes for those of you that are supervising folks. 
be very supportive and flexible. I had case managers that were willing to go and take a client somewhere at seven in the morning and stand in a line. And at minimum, I needed to be very supportive to that staff that was willing to go out of their way and out of their regular time schedule to really support this kind of a process because of who they, um, who they wanted to serve. So definitely be ready to be very flexible as a team when it comes to accessing resources. Okay, so I'm going to hand it off to Chelsea. We're gonna go forward with uh, my section where I'm gonna talk about housing first and harm reduction um, and kind of like the spirit behind what is housing first, why do we call it that and um, why is it important? Um, and then some harm reduction approaches that can be used with clients uh, in housing if they're running into problems. Um, and this will lead me into, I'm gonna talk about eviction prevention. Um, that was my primary, excuse me, that was my primary role in uh, when I was doing direct service was preventing eviction. So we'll talk about how to do that. Um, and so just catching up in the chat here, uh, Housing Works, thanks. Uh, that looks like a resource people should check out. And then LGBT Center is listed as another resource. So check them out. This is great. Being at trainings like this is wonderful opportunity to learn from the trainers, but also from each other. You all have so much expertise that one or even three trainers may not have the breadth of knowledge that you have all together in the room here today. So thanks so much for helping each other. Okay, we're going to talk about um, housing first. First, um, So what is housing first? It's based on a set of principles. And the gist is that we believe that housing is the first, kind of if you think of Maslow's, Maslow? Have, I can't remember the name, but the hierarchy of needs that Larry mentioned yesterday. Maslow? Maslow? Mas Maslow. Maslow, okay. I know Pavlov is the dog thing, but anyway, uh, thank you everyone. I appreciate you helping me. Um, but if we think of the hierarchy of needs, like stability, we need like the survival stuff, right? And so we're looking at housing as, oh, if we get housing situated first, then everything else that might be going on in someone's life becomes easier to manage. Um, so here's a list of principles. I'm gonna read them quickly. Uh, the first, homelessness is first and foremost a housing crisis, can be addressed through the provision of safe and affordable housing. I think we can all agree on that. Um, all people experiencing homelessness, regardless of their housing history and the duration of their homelessness, can achieve housing stability and permanent housing. Some need a little support and some need a lot of support um, and maybe long-term support. Um, everyone is housing ready, sobriety, compliance, in treatment or even, I should have paused there, sorry, sobriety, compliance and treatment, or even criminal histories are not necessary to succeed in housing. So these all seem really great, right? And we know that many uh, housing options for our clients are not going to follow these principles, but it's good to just understand what we in an ideal world would want um, to be uh, used in determining how people get housing. Um, so as you can see, these principles are kind of an idealized version of what 
we would like all housing to be all the housing access to be for our clients. We don't want a bunch of barriers. We don't want to put a bunch of expectations on someone before they get into housing, because it's much harder to do those things before they're housed than afterwards. Um, one thing, I'm not going to read the last three. I'll let you read those on your own. But I did want to mention that if you are working if you're trying to figure out if a housing resource is using kind of a housing first lens, um, you might ask questions. So for instance, say you identify a place where your client can move um, and you wanna talk with that housing opportunity, you might ask, can my client enter the program without income? Are applicants allowed to enter the program even if they're not clean and sober? or treatment compliant? Um, well, criminal justice prevent tenants, like a criminal justice history, like a criminal record, will that prevent tenancy? And are there service or treatment plans in place? And are they voluntary? Can they opt out? Like if they opt out, would they not get evicted? Unfortunately, many housing options available to our clients are not using housing first principles. So why am I even bringing it up? Um, the reason is it's a good frame for opening our minds to the creative process necessary for securing housing in such a complex system, where unfortunately our and our clients' housing preferences aren't always possible. So let me go to some harm reduction interventions that can be used for eviction risk. So you figured out whether or not what the rules are at this housing situation. Um, you figured out, oh, is it kind of housing first or do we have to be more mindful of all these other things? Even in housing first systems, which is, I worked within those, I worked only with clients who were at risk for eviction, i.e. they were receiving documentation in the mail saying you're going to be evicted unless you do something. Um, and that this was within housing first, right? So it's not as though even if you're in a housing first program, you can get away with all the things and still remain housed. Eviction risk can happen, particularly for our clients because of the combination of experiences and mental health, uh, you know, diagnoses, symptoms, um, substance use, um, just their experience living on the streets. It just really can impact uh, their success or not. Um, but the great thing about working with someone who is housed and is at risk for eviction is that there's a lot of opportunities to intervene before it happens. Um, so let's talk about the three biggest reasons that someone might be at risk for eviction. And those are non-payment of rent, um, habitability issues, which was a word I did not uh, know before I did that job. Um, that has to do with your habitat and uh, hygiene and keeping things orderly, and then behavioral issues. Um, and why would I talk about harm reduction with these particular issues? Because they're challenging to resolve completely and permanently. Um, so when we can't address someone, something completely and permanently, we've got to do it kind of step by step, like gradual changes, little tweaks here and there, because when we address the harm of each category, it helps reduce the overall eviction risk. And incremental improvement can be used to advocate against eviction in the courts. You can do that. 
So it's just, uh, this is the way I think of it in these three buckets. So the first bucket is non-payment of rent. Um, that can be a big one. Um, it was certainly a very big one uh, in the last couple years after we had, you know, um, evictions paused and then started again. Um, and so for non-payment of rent, the two main ways to deal with this and in using a harm reduction approach would be to look for rental assistance opportunities and benefit enrollment. So rental assistance, there's the COVID-19 rent relief that's no longer active. Um, but uh, in the past, you could have used that, but sorry, I forgot to delete that from this slide. That was for rent not paid during the beginning of the pandemic. Um, you can get use flex funds as kind of a casual rental assistance temporarily. Um, you can also get rental assistance from family and friends, you know, having encouraging clients to reach out to their networks for help. Um, and then there's coordinated entry problem solving. So for coordinated entry, it's a one-time use and they can do back rent um, and there's justification needed. So refer back to that lead agencies slide that uh, Danielle had from yesterday that uh, link that has more information about that. Okay, so if you've been able to do rental assistance, that's great. What about benefit enrollment? So let's say your client has zero income, maybe they missed their appointments with SSI or GA and their income has been paused. It's important to assess what benefits they could be linked to that would increase their income. And starting this process to get a client connected back to income will look good to the court if the landlord is trying to evict. So even if you're not, you know, SSI takes forever, right? For someone to get their check. We all know this if we've assisted anyone in that process. But the, you know, providing uh, evidence seems like a, too serious of a word, but providing documentation, that's what I was looking for, um, of this uh, application for benefits, stuff like that can help the case of someone who is uh, entering into an eviction court situation. So another one to think about, so we, I talked about SSI, I talked about GA, Medi-Cal, um, you want to check to make sure your client is enrolled in Medi-Cal if they're eligible, as this can open doors for under, other benefits I'll get into in a, another slide, um, including IHSS and home supportive services. Um, also, when you get clients connected to primary care, that can be helpful in providing justification for their, um, for stopping eviction. So, you know, Medi-Cal is one thing, but say you get them connected to Medi-Cal and then they get connected to a primary care. And then if you're doing an SSI application, you have the primary care ready to do that documentation. So um, even though these address different issues in this person's life, they can also really positively impact their eviction case. All right, so that's non-payment of rent. Our second kind of bucket of issues that can come up uh, and can be addressed using harm reduction strategies are habitability issues. Um, and so what this can look like is, uh, let's see. Um, so when someone's evicted or at risk for eviction because of habitability, it has to do with uh, clutter, and basically it's, it's uh, characterized as endangering others, you know, um, in, 
influencing the safety in the environment for the other tenants in the building. Um, so your client's clutter may be considered a fire hazard. It could be blocking exits in the unit or even elements of the housing preventing your client from using them. Like I had clients who had windows blocked. They had were unable to sleep in their bed because it was uh, covered in things or they didn't have access to the sink. They had stuff in the, if they had a bathroom, they had stuff in the shower so they weren't able to bathe. So things like that can lead to this uh, turning into uh, an eviction case. Other things that could be happening are pest infestations. Um, the most difficult of which to deal with can be bed bugs. Um, I did have a client in San Francisco get evicted for bed bugs. He had them over and over and over again. And it um, so even though it doesn't sound like something you should be able to get evicted for, it, it can happen. So there are a bunch of reasons that someone's difficulty in taking care of their environment, their home, can put them at risk for eviction. So what do we do? Where do we start with habitability issues? It can be really overwhelming. For instance, if you have a client who has hoarding disorder, um, it can be very uh, overwhelming as a provider too. Where do we start? This is impossible, right? Um, so it really depends on what your client identifies as something they're willing to change. So we're looking for opportunities to reduce the harm of the behavior in the situation to reduce the eviction risk here. Um, and so we wanna figure out what is the client willing to change and what is the landlord needing to change and trying to get those as close as possible together. Um, so some interventions that you can use for habitability improvement is in-home support services. If your client has Medi-Cal, they're eligible and a disability, they're eligible for IHSS. That could be, I've, I had many clients um, transition from failing all their inspections to passing inspections because they got an IHSS worker. Um, I've also had clients get an IHSS worker who lives in their building. Um, which was very convenient for everybody. Their friend got paid, but also helped them manage their unit so that they wouldn't get evicted. So I've found really great use of IHSS. Um, additionally, there's hoarding support services. Uh, these are available to support clients who have an abundance of clutter and difficulty, like distress with getting rid of stuff. Peer groups can be especially helpful because they have lived experience, which can help reduce the stigma a lot that comes with hoarding behavior. It's highly stigmatized and can cause a lot of shame. Um, and then primary care and home health. One of the first things I've always done with clients was to make sure they're connected to healthcare. And this often meant reconnecting folks with their primary care provider or establishing care for the first time. Um, this can be a really impactful harm reduction intervention because it brings additional resources to your client's world. Um, the social workers, for instance, at the primary care practice can help with coordinating getting supplies that help with habitability, like mobility devices, portable commodes, items to help with incontinence, like diapers, chucks, and disposable cleaning wipes, et cetera. And I say these all based on experience I've had getting this accomplished with clients at risk for eviction. Um, and that's DME, durable medical equipment. You can coordinate that once they're connected to primary care. And then finally, meal delivery. Some meal delivery 
delivery programs also include case management. So this adds another layer of support to your client, another person who's checking in on their status. Um, so that can be another way to just improve that safety net that your client has around their housing. Finally, the third bucket would be addressing behaviors that increase risk. So, um, you know, it's kind of a big bucket for behavioral. There's substance use, nuisance complaints, and housing rules violations. Um, and conflicts with neighbors, these can all lead to an eviction case against a client. Uh, depending on the circumstances, you know, substance use in and of itself often is not enough, um, but it does depend on the rules of the housing where the person is staying. So for substance use, and it's, you know, harm reduction is most often talked about in thinking about substance use. So the first thing we need to understand when we're thinking about harm reduction is that we need to meet the clients where they are and not judge the use. We can, and this can be really hard, uh, and we have a harm reduction training if you're interested, but there's a lot of, we're all trained to judge people for making bad decisions, okay? Even though, and that can be uh, really difficult to untangle when you're met with someone who might be intoxicated or high or um, otherwise incapacitated by substances, it'd be really hard not to judge. Um, but if we can move away from judging, one way to do it is to think of the use of the behavior because we can assume that the substance use is serving our clients in some way, even if it is also contributing to their struggle. So if even if we don't know exactly what the purpose is there, what is useful about the substance use, and this is not to say that we're condoning or supporting or encouraging substance use, but if we can understand that there is a purpose to it, that can uh, help us get more creative in our harm reduction approaches. Because if the only approach we have is to stop using, that's gonna be a really high bar to set for our clients. Whereas if they can change something incremental and smaller, it'll go a lot further in your relationship, in their confidence on being able to change behaviors that are harming them and in their uh, eviction risk, right? It'll, it can be greatly reduced. Um, so how can we reduce the harm of substance use if clients are not feeling motivated to quit? Well, if substance use is increasing eviction risk, we can talk with clients about how they can adjust their use to reduce their risk. For instance, perhaps the client's poor habitability, you know, the state of their unit, their apartment, whatever it is, is linked to being denied IHSS or other services because they had dirty needles in their home. So if we imagine like uh, injecting heroin user um, has dirty needles in their home and they get rejected or denied from IHSS because of the presence of those needles, what's a harm reduction move we could do to deal with that? Um, one thing we can do is we can connect our client with needle exchange to ensure that they have access to clean needles. Um, often needle exchanges can supply a sharps container to a client of theirs um, so that your client can then put the needles in the, um, in the sharps container, thus protecting workers who might be coming in to help them like IHSS. So once we reduce this harm, you know, that there are dirty needles, that's also just a risk in general, then that's kind of 
falling into these other areas of uh, problems that might be happening in this client's situation, right? Um, that their, uh, their habitability is improving, so it reduces their risk of eviction, and that, that's kind of the goal here. Um, some other behavioral issues might be nuisance complaints or housing rules violations or conflicts. Um, and how are these directly affecting eviction risk? Uh, we wanna really consider how these might be viewed in the court, right? So um, we wanna, and to do this, we wanna look for ways to advocate and support our client in incremental changes like I was talking about before. So perhaps your client has been attacked by a neighbor and so yelling at them was their response but only they got in trouble, not the neighbor. You could assist your client in filing a police report and getting a restraining order to show that they are attempting to resolve the issues. So I hope that example landed. Um, the example is like two people in a housing situation get in a fight, one of them gets in trouble, and that one is your client. But your client is at risk for eviction because of that fight. So doing something in order to show that the other neighbor was also involved might help their specific eviction risk. Doesn't help the other person, but you know that kind of thing is what we want to be thinking about when it comes to behaviors that increase risk. And now um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about eviction laws and how to deal once that happens. I have a lot of content on these slides. Um, so I encourage you to look at them afterwards. Um, but just to let you know that there are a lot of ways to intervene in an eviction pro process before your client gets kicked out, before the sheriff comes and, and you know kicks them out. Um, that day. So what I want to point out here is that there is a, I want you to understand and help your clients understand the difference between a notice and an unlawful detainer. So there are eviction notices at the top of this flow chart, and they can be a three-day notice, a 30-day notice, a 60-day notice, or a 90-day notice. That does not mean that somebody needs to move out after that amount of days or, or anything. That means something needs to change, which would mean they would be complying with the notice and remain housed, or their next step has to happen for the eviction to go to the court. So if they do not comply with the notice, the notice will generally have information about what's going wrong, like non-payment of rent, habitability, or other behavioral issues. Um, so if they do not comply, things don't get better, then they'll get issued an unlawful detainer or a summons. And that's the scary paperwork that really needs to get dealt with immediately. Otherwise, folks can lose their housing. Um, and so once someone receives that, an unlawful detainer, that's when you want to get your client assistance. And so I'm going to show you what that looks like next. Um, so assistance in LA County, there are legal clinics for eviction prevention. These can be really great to go with your client um, if you can. Um, there's the Eviction Defense Network, Legal Aid Foundation of LA, Neighborhood Legal Services of LA County, and Court Self-Help Centers. I have uh, more information about these in the slides, so feel free to check those out. And then this is old from, but if you 
for some reason have a client who has unpaid rent um, from earlier in the pandemic from a couple years ago, then this might be relevant, but likely not at this point. And so here's some additional eviction prevention resources. Um, and that sums it up for me. And thank you so much.